Well, before we jump into today's, today's message, I, I want to tell you how awesome Friday was. Um, if you weren't able to be there to be a part of it, we took our, our kids' carnival that we did last Saturday here at the church, and we kind of downsized it just a little bit, not much, and took that carnival to the kids' clubs in the northern Shenandoah Valley to their facility and through a carnival for their kids that, that come there after school. And I'll tell you what, we had a blast. It was so much fun to just hang out with those kids and, and bless them with candy and games and sugar and just like our carnival, then send them home with their parents. Um, and, and I'm telling you, it was, just, it was so cool. To, they, they'd get off the bus and they'd be walking past the gym and they could see into the gym that, like, there really is a carnival. And, you know, Spider-Man was there just like he was for our carnival, and that was awesome for them. They, just, they had a blast. And so, um, plus, I got to be the closest thing we have to a magician because I was making cotton candy, and it was a constant, how do you do that? Just as they was, wow. So I, I got to feel like I was special. I, I took it a little too far a few times. I was like, do you want me to make it in the shape of a dog? Or <laughs> only to the older kids because they would actually get the joke. They were like, yeah. And I was like, I can't actually. I, I wish I could. It kind of looks like a dog. I don't... But we had a blast. And so if you, if you were there, if you helped us with that in any way, we had some folks go over early th- or, um, Thursday evening to decorate, Friday come early to help, and then Friday during the event and clean up. And everything went so smoothly. And just thank you for your willingness to serve. It was a really good thing. Again, big credit to Kristen Quinn. It was her idea uh, to take it there, and she ran with it and took the lead on it, and I could not be more impressed with how awesome it was. And so those of you that had a hand in that uh, or said a prayer for it, thank you. It was awesome. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen um, to the message on our website or go back and watch it on our Facebook page because we began a two-week series on a very small book that will finish today uh, on the book Philemon. And just a quick recap, Paul writes this letter to a believer named Philemon who had a, a slave or a servant named Onesimus who had wronged Philemon, had, had run away from him and likely stolen from him. And upon meeting Paul, Onesimus becomes a believer. And he realizes, you know what, I, I owe something to Philemon. I owe him, I, I violated his trust or whatever, I, I owe him something. So in Paul's letter, what Paul is doing is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to welcome him back, not as a slave or a servant, but as a brother in Christ. And it's a big thing to ask. And as we discussed last week, it's only by realizing that holding grudges only really hurt the holder of the grudge that we can understand just how freeing it is to forgive. On top of that, it's also commanded of us that we be a people who forgive one another. And yet, and even on top of that, God forgave us when we least deserved it. So who are we to withhold forgiveness? And so what I want to do today is to, <clears throat> to let that story be the backdrop for a discussion on a, a different passage of Scripture that we'll get to in a few minutes. <clears throat> because it's entirely possible that you're in a place where you would say, yes, in a perfect world, I could always offer forgiveness. In a perfect world, if everything was right, I could freely, without qualification, or even sometimes if someone doesn't deserve it at all, I could, I could freely give forgiveness. It sounds great. I could do it in a perfect world. But aren't there limits? Aren't there people who need our forgiveness too often? Like we talked in generalities last week, and of course we can all jump on board for those kinds of statements and say, well, yeah, of course we can agree that forgiveness is freeing. And we even talked about letting God deal with what we can't let go of, and that's another thing that sounds good in theory but difficult in practice, because some of you have been deeply hurt by another person. 
We all have scars. Some are visible, some are hidden, some we've shared, and some we've kept to ourselves. Some are years and years or even decades old. Some are fresh and still being formed. And while it sounds nice to just be able to let go and to forgive, it sounds really, really good, even healthy. What if I can't? What if we can't? What if we want to and we express forgiveness and we even try to give it over to God? What if we do all that but we still can't seem to let it go? What are we supposed to do then? Isn't there some sort of threshold for things that are unforgivable? I mean, go back to this letter Paul writes to Philemon again. Whatever it actually is that Onesimus did, stole from him, broke a contract, ran away, whatever it was, under Roman law, it was punishable by death. And so Philemon has all the control in this situation because it's up to him what happens to Onesimus. He gets to decide whether to push this, whether to press this, whether to turn him over to the authorities so that he can receive his restitution for what Onesimus owes him. It's up to him. And here in this letter, here's what we read in verse 11 and following. Paul writes, Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. You see, he's saying, this is up to you, because ultimately, he owes you this. He owes you something. And unless you free him of that debt, I'm going to send him back to you, because that's what's owed. And so he says, this is all in your hands. He said, I wanted you to help because you're willing, not because... You were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now I would think that if anything was going to be at or near the threshold of unforgivable, it might be something that could also be punishable by death. And yet what Paul is asking Philemon to do here is place his relationship with Philemon as a brother in Christ above his desire for vengeance or even for justice, because I don't want to miss this. Onesimus would have technically deserved whatever punishment was doled out. He was in the wrong. If Philemon chose to turn him over to the authorities, he would have been well within his rights. In fact, Human logic says he probably should have turned him over. But something I think we sometimes fail to realize is that there are times when human logic is at odds with the callings and commands of our faith. That what's natural for us as humans flies in the face of what God says we should do. Among the things that God has commanded or called us to do, a lot of the hardest ones are those ones that just don't measure up with our human tendency, with our human logic. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus runs through a pretty good list of these kinds of commands and callings. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You see, those things are counter to our human logic, our societal nature, if you will. Have any of you actually been smacked on the cheek? Anybody ever been slapped across the face? Just curious. One person in first service was. 
Nobody's wanting anybody. No. Okay, cool. Just, just checking. I don't want to know why. How hard would it be to turn and say, "Hit me again"? Like, how difficult would that be? Because that doesn't feel good. I got a beard for protection, but come on. <laughs> I don't actually know if that helps. I've never been slain. I'm not taking volunteers either. How difficult would it be to turn and say, "Hit me again"? If, if somebody stole your shirt, how difficult would it be to chase him down, not to take it back, but to say, here, take my coat too? And yet that's the idea of what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's saying. He's saying, it's not natural, but it's what I'm calling you to do. In fact, I would put it this way, and this might sound weird, but stick with me. As Jesus followers, we are called to confuse those far from God. And I don't mean we're called to use big churchy words to confuse them because some of us have been known to do that. What I mean is we're supposed to love and serve and forgive and so many other things, even when it makes no sense to do so, especially when it makes no sense to do so. And when we do those things, it's going to confuse people. They're going to look at you and say, why in the world would you do that? And sometimes the only answer is Jesus. And that's the only reason. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. I, I do love, one thing I love about our carnival that we had last weekend is we make everything free on purpose. And inevitably we have guests and we love that we have guests. We love that we don't know every kid that comes through the door. And we always have a parent that'll say, is everything really free? And we'll tell parents, like, you should eat too. Oh, no, I don't need it. It's like, go have pizza. They don't understand why it's free and they look at us like we're crazy. And I love that. Because it's hard. I've got, I've got four kids. There aren't a lot of things you can take kids to for free. Like, you can get in for free, and then everything costs money most places. But, but we, we like to be able to say, listen, everything's included. Everything's a part of what we're doing here. You know, there aren't a lot of situations with, with free food and free activities for kids. But we want to show the love of God to these families, and one of the ways I believe we can do that is from time to time to do an event like that that is free. And it's confusing in a good way to people. And when it comes to forgiveness, I believe we're called to forgive even when it makes no sense to let go when others wouldn't, to embrace freedom instead of holding grudges. Honestly, that's why we titled this mini-series Clean Break, because so many of us have been tied down with the burdens of, of, of grudges and the unforgiveness that we're holding on to, and we've never been able to break away from that, to, to, to break away from that pain in our lives, and yet it would be the best and most freeing thing for us to have a clean break from that pain and those things that we're holding on to. If we can forgive, whether it's deserved or not, I believe we'll get that freedom and we'll confuse the world. So Jesus addresses this with Peter, and this is the, the passage I want to focus on really for the rest of our time together. But it's this passage of Scripture found in Matthew 18. And in the midst of Jesus continually teaching about forgiveness and reconciliation, the disciples are beginning to hear over and over again, this theme of forgiveness and reconciliation, forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and I'm sure that they've heard about it even beyond, even beyond what we have recorded in Scripture, that Jesus has talked about forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness and reconciliation, reconciliation. And, and what they're realizing is, man, Jesus is leaning towards this notion of unconditional forgiveness. Like, it kind of seems like, I can just imagine the thoughts in the disciples' minds, it kind of seems like he's saying we're supposed to forgive no matter what. And so Peter kind of brings this down to a practical level by simply asking Jesus how many times he should offer forgiveness to the same person. And so in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? 
Now, sometimes we're a little bit hard on Peter. Sometimes he misses the obvious. Sometimes he asks too many questions. Sometimes he asks questions that prove he might not have actually been listening. But I don't think we can fault him for this question. And I don't think his suggestion of how many times forgiveness should be offered is out of line either. There are some rabbinic texts that indicate that Jewish tradition included at least some limitation on the number of times forgiveness should be offered. And in a lot of cases, that number was three times. That that was kind of the commonly accepted number of of times to forgive someone. Information Peter would have possibly or even probably known. And so in light of that number, his suggestion of seven times It's pretty generous. And knowing some of what we know of Peter, it's also possible he more than doubled the suggestion that he may have been aware of because Peter likes to go above and beyond like that. And seven is a lot. Seven seems like a high number until you begin to think about your own life. My guess is that a lot of us can quickly think of people who have needed our forgiveness a lot more than seven times. And we can probably think of relationships when we needed forgiveness from someone more than seven times as well. But here's the thing we need to understand about this question that Peter asks. Peter even asking this question about the limits of forgiveness simply confirms that Peter at this point in time is still struggling to see things from a worldly, from anything but a worldly perspective. He's struggling to see things from a heavenly perspective or from God's perspective. In fact, just two chapters before this, in Matthew 16, there's an exchange between Jesus and his disciples where Jesus predicts his death. He says, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. This is going to happen. He begins to speak more freely about this. And Peter does the unimaginable. He pulls Jesus aside, and he basically scolds him for suggesting that he was going to die. Can you imagine having the audacity of Jesus? Let me, let, me, let me talk to you for a second. I don't think you want to tell them that. That's not going to happen. And he basically says, listen, this is not going to happen. I don't know why you're saying this. And it leads to this pretty famous statement from Jesus to Peter. In verse 23 of Matthew 16, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And it's clear that here, just two chapters later, we read that, that Peter still isn't quite ready to look beyond his worldly perspective when he suggests that there might be a limit to forgiveness. And so Jesus doesn't mince words here. In verse 22, no, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, those of you that are good at math might be saying, okay, so 490 times. I used a calculator to make sure I was right about that. But it's likely that Jesus used that particular number for a reason and that it's more about ongoing forgiveness than a specific number. Seven typically symbolizes completeness or a finished work, while 70 typically signifies spiritual perfection or completeness. And so if we take that idea into account, it's possible, even likely, that what Jesus was saying was that we are called to forgive to the point of spiritual perfection. And as happens when we throw the word perfection around, we point out, you know, that's not possible for us on our own in this life. And yet striving for it will cause us to grow closer to God than we were before. So I believe what we're truly called to is to forgive to the point where we are no longer hung up on the hurt or have anger 
toward the one who sinned against us, that our hearts need to be completely cleared of that burden, that grudge. And I think that's only possible with God's help. The Holy Spirit is our helper in times like that. And I believe if we forgive with the Holy Spirit's help, we can truly clear our hearts of that pain, of that burden. Another way to look at this, if you want to look beyond the numbers themselves, is to hear Jesus here pointing his followers, calling his followers to a mindset that is always and ever open to forgiveness and reconciliation. And away from a mindset where offenses and offers of forgiveness are meticulously tracked. Because here's the temptation. When you hear Jesus say, not seven times, but 70 times seven, there's a temptation to start writing it down, right? Well, this is, Craig wronged me this way today. And, you know, next Sunday you come back and you say, Craig, you're down to, uh, you're down to 460. And the next Sunday you keep track. There's a temptation to say, I'm going to start tracking to make sure somebody hasn't abused the forgiveness. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's a mindset that is always and ever open to forgiveness and reconciliation, not one that keeps track. And just in case they didn't get his point, as he so often does, Jesus goes on to, to tell a story, to, to give a parable in order to, to better illustrate what he is teaching, to bring this idea home to his, his listeners, his disciples. So it begins in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, to pay the debt. Now understand that the idea of this story was to present the amount of money owed as an astronomical amount, uh, even to suggest an amount that was impossible to repay in a lifetime based on the economic cli uh, climate of the time. Uh, the idea that in English we, we get it down to in this particular translation, millions of dollars, understand that that's still, the idea is that can't be repaid in a lifetime. It's a parable, it's, it's a story meant to point to something else. So the idea here is not about a specific sum or even about a specific punishment for failure to pay the debt, but it's about the enormity of our debt to God. And in truth, our debt to God is unpayable. We can't afford it and we'll never be able to afford it. Punishment is what we deserve and it's what the man in the story deserved. Verse 26, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Now, that's a big deal. An element that we sometimes miss in forgiveness, it doesn't always just mean saying the words, I forgive you, and letting go of the pain, putting down the burden. It can also mean clearing a debt from the records, not holding someone accountable for what they owe. It, it's really a, another word there is mercy that you could collect, but you choose not to. Allowing someone off the hook for something they owe you. That was part of the idea, certainly, in the forgiveness that Paul was asking Philemon to give to Onesimus. But it's not the end of the story that Jesus tells here, unfortunately. Verse 28, But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And as you read the story, you think, I know this isn't a true story, but man, do the right thing here. After, after what was just done for you, millions of dollars of debt forgiven, do the right thing here. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. 
be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. And you're still thinking, do the right thing here after what was just done for you. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. You see, Jesus doesn't hide the true meaning of this story. Sometimes it's, it's kind of left for us to figure it out or for his disciples, the listeners, the time to figure it out. He lays it out there that we who are forgiven must forgive. That, that if we receive forgiveness and then withhold forgiveness, we are missing something huge. That if we can't forgive from our hearts, how can we expect God's forgiveness? In Patty's commentary on Matthew, he phrases it this way. He says, this is not a law that stands above the disciple and that they simply must obey. It is perceiving things from the perspective of the kingdom. And as a consequence, having internalized God's will. You see, what I think Patty is saying there is this isn't a command to check off our list daily or weekly or however often. You know, sometimes we do that with some of the commands of God. And we say, okay, I know I'm not supposed to lie. And so each day I don't lie, I'm going to feel good about that. I'm going to give myself credit for that and say, that was a good day. That really is sometimes how we view the commands and callings of God. But if we say, today I need to forgive, and we do it a time or two, and so we give ourselves credit for that because we're commanded to do it, we are missing something. Instead, forgiveness needs to become a part of who we are, which comes from a mindset that is based not on this world, but on God. We don't forgive because God said so. We forgive because God did so. And if we're going to set our hearts on God, if we're going to truly seek to follow Jesus, forgiveness will become a part of who we are. And will flow out of us, not out of obligation, but as a response to the forgiveness we've received from him. And that's something I don't think we can drive home enough, that our readiness and our willingness to do the things that God has called us to do, those things need to come not from a place of obligation, but as a response to all that he has, even, all that he has done for us. I think there's a temptation sometimes to make a legalistic list of things we're supposed to do if we want to be right with God. That's not how it works. Our readiness and willingness to do the things he's called us to do needs to be a response to what he's done for us. It needs to be a natural outpouring from us to the people around us. Not because he said so, but because he did so. Even just understanding what God did for us through Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that alone should evoke a natural response of whatever you want me to do, God, I'm ready and willing to do because you gave all for me. That forgiveness is one of those things. And understand that if coming to understand God's forgiveness for you changed your life and my life, our willingness to forgive, even 70 times 7, has the potential to change someone else's life. Through that forgiveness, or even through that forgiveness, pointing them to a forgiving and merciful God. It's possible you've never thought about it that way, but your willingness to forgive could point somebody to a forgiving God. We read a passage like Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. We read that, and again, there's a temptation there to see this as something to do because we're supposed to do it. Or that it's a, a give and take because God forgive us, we have to forgive others. And on some level, those things are true, but I want to make sure we understand that it's more than that and it's deeper than that. It really is that response that we talked about. And I love the way Shannard describes it in his commentary on Matthew. I couldn't say it better than him, so I want to read you what he wrote about this. He said, The sentiment expressed is a reminder that there must be a direct correspondence between the way God has responded to our sin and the way we respond to those who sin against us. A direct correspondence between the way God has responded to our sin and the way we respond to those who sin against us. Extending forgiveness to others takes its incentive and distinctive qualities from the way that God in Christ has responded to our condition. You see, while we were still sinners, God forgave us. And in the midst of their wrongs against us, we are to forgive others. No qualifications. Nothing they have to do first. No earning it. The way that God forgave us, we are to forgive others. Because God forgave us, we forgive others, but not so much because of the forgiveness he gave, but because of what it means. Because of what it means for us and how undeserved it was. It makes no sense, which to me makes it much more amazing and meaningful and should push me to offer that same kind of forgiveness. That makes no sense. And maybe... When I offer that forgiveness, somebody will come to know God's forgiveness. You see, ultimately, here's what it comes down to for me. Sometimes the thing that stands between a person and belief in God is something they've never experienced. I think sometimes what stands between a person and their belief in God, things that hold them back, I think that a lot of times it has to do with things they haven't experienced. For example... A lot of people who didn't have a loving father in their life growing up struggle to understand the concept of God as father. And for a lot of people, that distinction is enough to keep them from believing. And they say, listen, you talk about God as father, you talk about him being love, and, and, and I can't weigh those two things together. Because when I think of father, I think of abuse or neglect or abandonment or coldness or whatever it is. That there are people who, who their experience with fathers on this earth is so poor that they don't want to hear you call God Father because it creates this block for them. And I think there are a lot of people in your life and in mine who don't really understand forgiveness because they've never been forgiven. They've never been offered real and true forgiveness. Sure, they've heard the words. Maybe they've said the words themselves, but they've never experienced the freedom of being forgiven for wrong they've done. And so the idea of a forgiving God who doesn't pick and choose which sins to forgive and who doesn't hold grudges and who doesn't bring up the past but truly forgives and removes that sin from us as far as the east is from the west, it just seems impossible because for their entire life, it seems like everybody has held everything over their heads and they've never been able to live down the things that they've done and the past just keeps creeping up because people keep 
bringing it up, and they just they don't understand the idea of forgiveness. And so they say, if my family won't forgive me, if my friends won't forgive me, if I can't forgive myself, why would God care enough to forgive me? And, and, and again, there's a, there's a block, there's a, a gap there, there's a wall that gets built because it's just hard to understand a forgiving God if you've never understood forgiveness. I believe it's very possible that you and I and our willingness to forgive could be a breakthrough for someone in our life who doesn't know or believe that God loves them and he sent Jesus to die for them and that through that sacrifice they are both forgiven and free. We talk all the time about loving people like God loves people and expressing God's love to them through the way we treat them and talk to them and serve them. We talk about that all the time. And I think one of the greatest expressions of God's love that we can offer is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. So here's the challenge. The next time you have the choice to forgive or not to forgive, and it'll happen, maybe even today, don't just focus on the offense. It's easy to do. Don't just focus on the offender. That's also pretty easy to do. Don't just think about yourself or your own feelings. Consider the message you send when you forgive or don't forgive. Consider the possibility that your forgiveness could point someone to a forgiving God. And in that moment, I want you to remember how much God has forgiven you for. And if your forgiveness could point them to a God who loves them and said, Jesus, for them, and I don't want you to hesitate to offer forgiveness. See, I think sometimes we miss opportunities to point people to Jesus. We, we, we think about serving people and loving people in specific ways, but things like forgiveness... And that can mean more than anything to the right person. And if it could point them to God who loves them and a God who forgave them, that could be all the better. We need to be a people of forgiveness, whether it makes sense or not. Because God forgave us when it made no sense. Let's pray. God, thank you for that forgiveness that you've given us. I thank you for sending Jesus to walk this earth as a man, to, to do so sinlessly, and then to still take the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven and free. God, help us never to forget how much that forgiveness means to us. With that, God, I pray that you would help us to let that kind of forgiveness flow out of us to the people around us. God, help us to be a light in a dark place shining the way to you. God, help us to be a people of forgiveness and let that forgiveness point people to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.